kick off with the biggest character deal only at Pep. Baby's tees and vests only thirty nine ninety nine. Kids just forty four ninety nine. Buy any two and score a saving of ten. More deals, more fun in store. Life's better with Pep. Vuga Online Radio, your inspiration radio station. Get seamless underwear at super low prices only at Pep. Seamless non-padded bras and incredible $59.99 in a soft, stretchy fabric. Matching seamless boy legs and amazing $34.99. Get them all in a range of new colors. Life's better with Pep. More music, more inspiration. Vuga Online. from South Africa, but you may actually be in any one of numerous countries in the world where you stream Healthcare Hour. So welcome. You may be listening in a different time zone, in a different weather. In the south at the moment, or in the, in the southern hemisphere, it's quite hot. Well, certainly where I live in Johannesburg, it's quite hot. So settle in. As you know, Healthcare Hour is about healthcare. It's about healthcare professionals. It's for us to know that healthcare professionals are people. They might have titles. They might have research papers as long as your arm. But at the end of the day, they're people. And we wanting to bring that people aspect to healthcare more than it is currently. Also, us understanding that as patients, because at some point, all of us or one of your loved ones is a patient, how do we take ownership of our own health? How do we not just sit there like little puppets going, <laughs> and we don't even know what we're agreeing to or not agreeing to, and we feel like we don't have any power, no autonomy. And then, of course, the show is about us improving relationships between healthcare professionals and patients, healthcare professionals and patients' families. Most weeks, I have a guest, and I always have fascinating guests, you know, and it's about us talking about different aspects of healthcare. And my guests are most often healthcare professionals themselves, but they're also people. So my guest today is Rory Fanameva. Pleased to meet you, Rory. Hello, Colleen. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Okay, and we're going to hear, just let me just give you a little tidbit about Rory, and then we're going to go for a break, and then we'll meet some, we'll meet him more, find out more, and cover dig into who and what he is. So Rory is the author of the Hope Fuel Framework, we're going to find out because I'm not just pronouncing it wrong, is a multi-talented professional who seamlessly integrates his skills as a psychologist, a coach, and a project and change manager. And what he's doing with those three is he is translating strategic goals into practical real-world outcomes. So you know that power in the sky one day, those goals he turns into actions. And his unique blend of abilities allows him to align the efforts of individuals, teams, and organizations, resulting in improved business performance. So he has done a whole bunch of things, but it's also interesting he talks about being a working psychologist, so we're going to ask you about that after the break. And he also describes himself as a hooper, 
So, mm, okay, we're going to find out about that. And also, he also talks a lot about adaptability. But let's go for that break. SA's lowest cost bank account is here. No monthly fees, no debit orders and free money transfers. Now you can do even more from your phone for free. Like pay bills and buy airtime or data. And it works on any phone. Register via the ShopRite app or dial this number. Powered by ShopRite. More music. More inspiration. Vua Online. Welcome back. You're listening to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. My guest today is Rory Fanamava. He is a psychologist, a coach, and a change change person. He's a change. He works in change management. Puts them all together, and he calls himself a working psychologist. So, Rory, let's start off with that. Do other psychologists not work? Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> I think they work a lot harder than me. Um, I I chose to not practice psychology in terms of a, an individual profession and and doing counseling psychology, which is my specialization. I was working at the Marisburg Counseling Center at the university, and I realized that my internship was a great challenge. But I wanted to I wanted and I've always had a flavor for working in workplaces and being with teams. So ultimately, of course, it's an individual, but it's an individual in context. And I found that for me, when I was doing my studying, I had before I went and did my honors and masters, I spent three years teaching. And it was around the same time that uh, Robin Williams released that film, uh, Dead Poet Society. And I loved the idea of being a a teacher of influence like that. Um, And that came out in my last year. And I remember busting the kids down to go and watch the movie because, you know, through the syllabus out because we could that was like a really important movie to watch. And along the way throughout my career, I've I've basically, I've qualified after the event. So as a change manager, as a project manager, I ran a global project um, for about five years before I qualified in project management. Um, As a change manager, I was doing a whole lot of different projects and using things that intuitively came to me through my psychology, through my teaching, um, and then suddenly found this thing called, for example, post-traumatic growth. I had to redo my board exam in 2015 because I let my CPD point slip. And when I woke up, I was outside of the scale of, of uh, I was two weeks past the deadline date. So I had to redo my board exam 20 years later. Mm. And I looked at that and thought, my goodness me, you know, um, how can we look at bringing our integrated whole into this workplace, these workspaces, help people as individuals, because they, they come to work, but they also come from a context. And I remember in the factory environment, we in the early days, it would be like we'd, we'd tell the people, the operators, you know, leave your brain at the gate. We just need your hands to operate the machine. And very quickly, my project in that environment is we begged them to bring their brain to work. Because without them contributing, without them being acknowledged, and without them stepping up and actually giving us more, that discretionary effort, we actually, we're going to shut that factory down and lose three and a half thousand jobs, import the product from Brazil cheaper than we could produce it. So that was my first real experience of working in a, a you know, I call it a working psychologist, but I wasn't, I wasn't branding myself as a, I was an HR person. I was the training manager. I was training apprentices. Um, I was coaching the, the various line managers. And I realized that that's what I do intuitively, naturally, and I do it well because I'm playing to my strengths. So the working psychologist is really just a way of me framing my own, how I show up. 
So we're not going to get letters from psychologists of saying, hey, that Rory, man, <laughs> telling we work too. <laughs> Absolutely. As I said, I, I preface it saying I'm sure they work harder than me. <laughs> okay, so interesting what you said there, because it is about not not the title we have anymore, but it's about the skills and it's about the skill set we have and how we can match those skills um, without even realizing often that we haven't had formal training in those skills, but they come along. We intuitively know how. And it's when you work within your strengths, you also it comes more naturally to you as opposed to somebody who's got to go and work out of their strengths and go, oh, what's step two now? Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. you know, I totally agree with you there that often I go back and I go like, I just knew what to do. But then you think, why did you know? And then someone says, oh, well, that's a something, something. And they give it the title and you go, oh, okay, really? <laughs> Chapter yeah. seven. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, that's almost having those um, after the event. And I'll give you a classic example of where, where my passion point is at the moment. Um, going into lockdown. Uh, I was on a contract and they terminated that contract a week before lockdown. So I went into lockdown with no income. Um, and I'm an extrovert. I, I get my energy with and from and by people. And asking me to social distance was was suicide for me. Um, it was the most depressing place. And I spiraled down and down and down. And I didn't need to have anybody tell me I was depressed, anxious, stressed, overwhelmed, not coping. Um, I went and saw a psychologist and with that, you know, go on to the, the medications and the treatments. But at the same time, I was also looking at what was going right for me in lockdown. And part of that was what I was choosing, what I was listening to. And part of what I was choosing, what I was listening to was I was going on free webinars and I was meeting the likes of the, the global professionals of Dave Ulrich as the best HR, the father of HR. And I was having engagements with him. And I said to him, Dave, this is what I'm thinking around hope. And this is why I want to do hope. And we were brainstorming around what does the R mean on the back of that? Um, which I would never be able to do in my normal pre-COVID life. You know, he just wasn't available to me. So as we went through that, I was investigating hope because I looked at this thing in, a, in, the, in the context of where I was at. I realized that I needed to find a way to rejuvenate, rebuild, repair, restore, um, almost redefine and reinvent myself. And part of that was, well, I can't give from an empty vessel. I can't, you know, be anything to anybody, even my family, if I am depleted. Um, around that time, you remember there was a lot of stuff coming on the on the various broadcast channels around how we coped, what we listened to, the information, the disinformation and the and the misinformation. And I was on a webinar with uh, the Hendy team. And Mark Orpenlau, who was an old Union Depot colleague of mine, he mentioned this thing called post-traumatic growth. And he started explaining it. And I'm going, wow, I'd never heard of that. Now, yeah. here I am. I mean, it, was, it came out of the theory a couple of years after I graduated. I'd been working in factory environments. I'd run my own business. I'd done a whole lot of different things. And the best example I can give you that made sense to me was Alison. Alison who had her throat cut and it was disem yeah. dis literally disemboweled and, and, and she managed to crawl onto the road. And she went on to be, subsequently become a global motivational speaker around how she coped with that massive trauma. So in my head, post-traumatic growth was reserved for, for the elite few. And then, I started the realizing, yeah, yeah. and then I started realizing that me getting through COVID in my circumstances I needed to have that post-traumatic growth logic. And then I started understanding what is post-traumatic growth, went back to the research, 
looked at what I'd never been taught. My CPD had never kind of um, corralled it and brought it to me, but it just made so much sense around me and my story. That's why I say I'm a working psychologist. I, I don't know everything by any means, but I, as I go along, I need to, what do I need for me right now? So almost the concept, just enough light for my next step right now. Yes. And so important there as well, lifelong learning, learning, um, curiosity. And we also, we don't know what we don't know. Mm. And we, we can only do differently when we know differently. Absolutely. So it's also important for people not to beat themselves up of, you know, as you said, gee, I didn't know about post-traumatic growth, but you know about it now. So Yes. And so it's a case of when it comes into your life, pick it up and go, yay, what are we going to do with this now? Yes. Yeah. And how can and how can this new insight and revelation and reframe for me? Remember, I started of looking at hope. And and I had kind of really wrestled with what does hope mean for me? And I also never realized how much hope was part of who I am. It's kind of been built into my DNA from when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um my my strengths, one of my main strengths is maximizing, which my family detests intensely because if somebody gets, oh, please grab me a glass of water. You know, it's like just no, <laughs> get your own water. Um, but the other one I have is learner and I have input. So I love researching and exploring new things and then trying to make sense of it for myself. And as I've worked in multiple various workplaces um, between young and old and, you know, highly uh, C-suite names, titles and, 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 and factory workers and everything in between, I realized I like working with the troops in the trenches. I like working with people and, 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 and as we're working, it's kind of, what about this? And how, and, and again, those curious conversations. Um, and then oftentimes, well, I, I've just found this new thing. Does that resonate for you? Um, and that's where for me, hope made so much sense in the COVID context. So my, I'll get to the hope here in a moment, but the hope was H was the here and the now. It is what it is. So what are those hard facts? Whether they're good or bad is actually irrelevant. And in fact, during COVID, we had a really nice soundbite. Um, this too shall pass was one of them. Um, and it's okay to not be okay, which, I, you know, again, we needed to almost get permission. It's okay to not be okay. So that's, for me, was the H, the here and the now. And then I started looking at it, and I tried to play around with the O and the P and the E. And I realized that going into lockdown, as I said to you, I had to reinvent and rejuvenate and reactivate and restore and repair and rebuild everything of who I was. My identity, my value, my sense of contribution, my sense of purpose, my whatever. I had to re really wrestle with that. So that for me was the P. I needed to have a perspective shift because I nestled until I had a perspective shift for myself. There was no way I could even look at what that, oh, that opportunities, what are those possibilities? They, they, they just, my, it's like when you're driving in a vehicle and you have this amazing peripheral vision and then suddenly a stone hits your windscreen, which happens all too often on the R21. And I'll the be next thing, yes, you, yes. The next thing, your 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 whole perspective shut sh- narrows down to that 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 new glass damaged windscreen, and your peripheral vision gets lost. And that was me at the beginning of lockdown. I had lost my peripheral vision, but every day I was actually saying, "How can I actually again my energy coming from and with and by people?" So I was deliberately looking, and I didn't realize I was actually finding ways to keep myself sane and safe and healthy intuitively it wasn't a plan it almost i kind of knew what to do so i would get up i would get dressed i would do my exercise i would do i would do all my reflective and you know meditations and introspection and all that 
And then I would actually say, okay, so today, what can I find out that I didn't know when I started the day? So then, oh, there's a webinar over here. There's this over there. Um, I was doing a lot of research and I was trying to also make sense of um, what, where am I and how am I coping in this here and now? So there was the first perspective shift and that change was what's in my control. And as I reframed it in terms of what's in my control, it doesn't help me to then say what I don't know and what I haven't, what I can't control, because that was overwhelming. You know, should we have a vaccine? Is there going to be a vaccine? Is it going to poison us? I actually kind of just let all that stuff go and, and, and said, you know what, right now, let's avoid having to have a vaccine, whether it's good or bad. Let's yeah. just keep ourselves safe. So what was my immediate here and now? And how do I cope with that as the best I can? That then opened up for me with what I called the O, oh, the opportunities or new possibilities. And as I was discovering this thing called post-traumatic growth, that's exactly what the opportunities is around new possibilities. So how do you engage and embrace a new possibility if your mind is closed to it, if you are not wanting to explore and embrace and see what might yet be and become? So, so that was my whole perspective. And then that unlocked for me energized engagement. It, it unlocked for me, how can I talk to people? How can I go there with something that I can contribute that's made sense to me because I've labored over it, I've mulled over it, I've applied my mind, I've chewed on it, and now I can bring it to somebody and say, this makes sense to me. How does it resonate for you? Okay. So after the break, we're going to come back to that R. And we're also going to look at, you know, how we define hope. Because some people see hope as being mm, pie in the sky, fairy magic stuff. So, but let's go for that break first. No one decides hey, to go into here? debt. It creeps up on you. Hey. Slowly. Ah! Debt. Follows debt, follows debt, unless you do something about it. Face your debt problems before they cripple you. It's time to do it. You're listening to Vuga Online. You are rocking with the best. Welcome back. You're listening to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. My guest today is Rory Fandamava. Rory is speaking to us about hope. He's speaking about how when COVID hit, he had to go reinvent himself. He had to actually come up with a new identity, new way of seeing things. And, and so from there, he was like researching very much an extrovert, very curious. He was looking at different things, going to find different ways and started looking at hope. And then realizing as well that the hope or he calls himself a hoper. And he's been telling us that the H is for here and now. The O is for opportunities, what opportunities are out there. But in order for you to see the opportunities, you have to very much make sure that you have had a perspective shift. You're not just seeing the old, old, the way you used to see life. And then also seeing as well that you can bring in energized engagement. You know, what can you do with that? And then, Rory, we get to that R. Thanks, Colleen. So, it's for me, it's an unfolding thing. I mentioned just now reinvent, reignite, restore, repair, rebuild. And, and that was my sense of hope at the very beginning was I had these R's. And it really, for me, goes back to, again, one of my, my I have a very strong and deep faith. Um, and part of that was the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. You know, he was pained hundreds of miles away on a story that he heard. And he then decided he was going to go. He went to the king, got permission, got a, an entourage endorsed by the king went across to to jerusalem and and literally said these walls are are terrible let's fix them 
And he came up with a very pragmatic and a practical plan in terms of how did he approach the king? What did he do? How did he make that journey? How did he, when he got to Jerusalem, how did he actually start fixing those walls? So for me, the RE's were, were and that's where the hope has really come from, is this the, it's my way of actually taking the Nehemiah story for Laurie and saying, how can I go in and repair and rebuild and fix? Uh, are there any other variations on the R, but let me leave it at that one at the moment, because it's probably the one that makes the most sense. Okay. And I think listening to your story about Nehemiah sounds like he had a coach because his big goal was chunked up into little pieces and said, okay, now go do this, but now go do that, but now. And so many people don't achieve what they're wanting to because they see it as a big giant mountain as opposed to little bite-sized pieces. Exactly. And I think we can often set ourselves up for a, for a, a failure because we actually have this yes. sort of moonshot um huge goal of, of of changing the world of ending poverty or hunger yeah. or you know solving the, the the climate crisis or inventing the the vaccine of whatever that vaccine might need to be mm. um and i mean we had some amazingly talented people but what i looked at during even again the covid has changed the way that we are that we approach think through and actually even work and live and move and have our being yeah and one of the things that we saw coming through which i had not really seen as much of is this incredible sense of collaboration and connection. And in one sense, you know, you can only collaborate and connect if you've got a relationship with somebody. And again, that's one of the post-traumatic growth levers is this idea of this trauma happens. And then in and from a result of that trauma, I, I, I discard the peripheral. I get rid of the obligatory kind of, I, I focus in on where and which relationships are really important and, and personal that both build me and actually allow me a channel and an, an outlet that is in, enabling and enriching for both parties. So it's almost like a, a reappraisal of, you know, what's important, what's valuable. Mm. Um, and I think when you look at it from a hope point of view, you're, you're wanting to say, how, how, how big is this thing? Um, how, who's it going to impact? Um, and one of the challenges that I, that I had more recently was I was invited to the Linda Cookley Memorial at the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital. Uh, late last year it was the first memorial that they had but Linda Cootley was a little boy who was burnt in a fire and his mom happened to be one of uh, Madiba's staff and he was put into Mill Park because they had a very good burn unit there and Madiba went to go visit this boy and he literally was overwhelmed with this is not child friendly you know, the parents couldn't even get, because I mean, you're dealing now with ICU, with burns and with sterile environment. And, but this is a child. He's four, five years old. And he needs to have physical contact and proximity with his loved people. And that was the birth of the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital. It was literally, it took a sacrifice of such profound magnitude that they then activated in a way of saying, how can we build a hospital for children? that engages them and it's child-friendly, that is, you know, family and environment-friendly. And actually, it's about hope that people will leave the hospital healed, repaired, restored. Yes. So in your hope there, I'm hearing lots of action. I'm not hearing the inaction of we'll sit here and we'll just hope, okay? Um, and so some people see, ah, we'll just sit here and we'll hope. You know, we'll hope that you'll get the job. We'll hope that you find a wife. We'll hope that you uh, turn out to be a nice guy. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of 
a lot of action in it. And there's no like magic fairy wands because sometimes people see hope as wishful thinking. Exactly. Or a dream. Mm. And and it's like, it's like, let's just envision what can be, but it, but it's, it's impractical. It's unrealistic and it's, and it's just never achievable. So, so for me, hope is actually what is, uh, as you say, more action focused and biased and it, and it, and it has a purpose behind it in terms of, it's not toxic positivity. It's not, it's not this optimistic idealism. Um, there's a great story told in Jim Collins's book, when you wrote good for great. And he interviewed James Stockdale, who was an American pilot in the, in the Korean or Vietnam war. And he was shot down and taken prisoner of war. And a lot of our post-traumatic growth comes from these prisoner of war stories, mm. whether it was the second world war and the Holocaust, whether it was um, the Vietnam vets and, and, and so on. But Jim, Jim Stockdale, uh, Sorry, James Stockdale then told the story of, he said, you must never give up your faith, hope, and belief. The next can be better. In other words, that hopeful, desired, not a dream, but it's that desire. But he says, you've also got to live in the here and the now, and it can be the undesirable here and now. He couldn't change the fact that he was being um, in solitary confinement and abused and tortured and so on and had no food. But he looked across and, and, and Jim Collins asked him, he said, but you know what, how did you survive under those terrible conditions when others that had it a lot easier, they didn't survive? He said, well, they were the optimists. They were the people that said, oh, Easter's going to come, we'll be free. And Easter came and went and they still weren't free. Oh, no, Christmas, yeah. Christmas, Easter, Christmas, Easter. And, and, and they died because it was an impossible thing. They were waiting to be saved outside of what they had at their own disposal. Edith Edgar wrote a brilliant book called The Choice, a Holocaust survivor at the same time as Viktor Frankl. And, and she talks around the power of choice. And that choice is around what am I going to do in my circumstances yes. with what I have available? And it might not always work, but I can course correct. I must actually start. And it's easy to course correct or regal or, or, or kind of cal- recalibrate if need be. But to sit and design and, and plan and, and create this master document on version 75, well, just get started. Do something. Yeah, do page one. Yeah. yeah. And it's also important there as well for, for our audience to actually go to the listeners is, is that it's about recognizing where you are. It's not the toxic version of, oh, but you know, you're not here. It's also not mm. telling the person when they are in the mess that they're in, whatever, choose your mess, okay? It's not about saying to them, oh, but you will get out of this, okay? Yes. It's all, no, 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 you're fine. You'll, you'll be mm. fine, okay? It's about saying, given where you are, let's talk about what you are. Let's look, let, how does it feel? What does it sound like? What is it? What does it smell like? Whatever, okay? And given where you are, what are we going to do about it? So what's so important with emotional agility is also seeing that it's about recognizing the fire alarm is not bad. The fire alarm is telling you about the fire and we've got to work out what's creating the fire. Yes, exactly. And I think we learned so much during COVID. You know, there was a soundbite that came out which says you need to work from home. Yeah. The reality was we lived at work. Yeah. It's the same reality. It's just we see it differently. And I think we started realizing this thing called ambiguity and uncertainty. And, you know, the, the, the military term all those years ago, VUCA. And then yeah. we've, had, we've added on to it. Now we've got Rupt and Barney and Tuna and all sorts of other things. I kind of call it 
we are all traumatized. Gabo Mate is a psychiatrist in Canada. He says we are all traumatized. And during COVID, he released a movie called The Wisdom of Trauma, which he crowdfunded. And The Wisdom of Trauma literally says we are all traumatized. But the it's not what happens to you in terms of the event. It's what happens inside of you because of what happened to you. Yeah. And that's where Edith Edgar's thing is around choice. You can't change what happened. It is what it is. It's you not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. But what, yeah. Yes. How are you now going to do something with that? What's yes. in your control? What's out of your control? Pick your fights. Yes. So exactly that. I always say that we've all got cracks. Sometimes they're microscopic and sometimes they're big, great gaping chasms, but everyone has them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when we come back from the break, it's also about saying, you know, people are listening to us and going like, okay, well, do I have hope? You know, and they're thinking like, how do I measure hope? How do I know? And if you're thinking, okay, your stock of hope is a bit low, where do we find it? Mm. But let's go for that break. And then we're going to go on a shopping spree for hope. PMD offers comprehensive car insurance that you can trust from as little as 620 Rand per month. I've been with PMD for almost 10 years. I've been with PMD since 2019 and this is the second car I've insured with them. I received awesome service from PMD. I was very impressed. It's really refreshing dealing with a company that actually loves what they do. You enjoy excess that reduces to zero over time and your monthly premiums are fixed for 24 months at a time. More music, more inspiration. Hi there, welcome back. You're listening to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. I'm speaking to Rory Fanamava, and he's been talking to us about hope fuel. And yes, you know, when we talk about, oh, we must be hopeful, but it's also about hope fuel. And it's also seeing that hope fuels us. And he, of course, as well, speaks about hope as being the fifth vital sign. And for those of you who may not be medical, you know, realizing, okay, vital signs tell us that you're, you're alive, that you're not gone, okay? And so your heart rate, your blood pressure, your respiration, your temperature tell us, okay, hmm, there's, he's still with us or she's still with us. But certainly he's adding hope to those vital signs. Belinda, tell I us can more about that, context. yes. Yes, if I can give context to the fifth vital sign, I, I discovered that, uh, again, I do a lot of learning inputting and so on, so I trawl and research and so on, and I, I came across the most phenomenal co- colleague of mine, Catherine Geske. Um, she is the United Nations Ambassador for Mental Health, and she's literally rebranded Hope. So she has this iconic sort of sunflower logic, and she has a company now that she's taken to market called Shine Hope, and she's the Chief Hope Officer. So I've been chatting to her for the last couple of years. And part of that is that they have done incredible research. And this she started from hopelessness and depression. And then they realized, but there's hope. And, and so they actually then started, they didn't focus on the negative, which oftentimes from a psychology point of view, we also, we default into that medical model, which is what's wrong. And when I went to my psychologist, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not sleeping all well, this happened now. I'm, you know, actually you've got 12 of the 11 symptoms. Yeah. So what? You know, and, but where does hope fit in? Where's the pull factor towards? How do we kind of not just do a diagnostic and then a treatment in terms of, you know, this will take time. And remember, change is a journey. It's not an event. It's a journey. Um, and underestimated the power of the social connection. Remember I said earlier the, the idea of um, social distancing and how I struggled with that. 
if they called it what it should have been, given the right words, they could have said to us, keep physical distance. But they conned me into saying, have social distance. I, I, that's why I almost withered away. And then I had to say, actually, this is not around social distance. This is around how I keep physical distance and, and keep myself safe and so on. But I need that social interaction. Yes. So for me, one of the critical things around around hope is this this vital sign. And I listened to Edward Barksdale, who's a physician of note in America, runs a children's hospital. And he was doing a graduation keynote address to a, a class of, of medical graduates. And he told the story of how in Nicaragua, where he couldn't speak the language, he actually was on a on a literally a home visit. Um, and this granny came up to him. And grabbed, if she couldn't speak his language, he couldn't speak hers. But Granny actually put the grandson on the floor, literally, you know, swept the dust, laid this child down. And he had his, literally, he was, he was cut open from a barbed wire fence from, you know. Up. And he, Edward Barksdale says that the, the Granny's hope caused him to go back to the States, to raise money, to set this thing up, to fly that child into the States, to actually do what needed to be done in terms of a surgery and repair. And the child is alive. So I, I credit this back to Edward Barksdale because he actually tells the most profound story of Granny's hope. Not even his hope, because he kind of looked at oh, well, you know what? This is a false hope. This is a lost cause. This is a, you know, oh, diagnostic. It's impossible. Yes. Um, but as I say, looking at it from Catherine's perspective and then her wider network, and I've kind of met a lot of the folks along the way, but um, in my recent LinkedIn post, I actually specifically called out and I say, Edward, I, I, I believe this is yours. You called this thing out as the fifth vital sign. Um, but he has the, the gravitas and the credibility. He is, a, he is a physician of, as I say, multiple award-winning and all the rest. And it, it, for me, it was the story he told at that graduation that I was going, oh, the fifth vital sign. And I've, I've kind of latched onto that because I'm, if we're going to actually be hope, well, you've got to be a beacon of hope. You've got to be a lighthouse that people move towards hope. Yes. And hope is contagious. And, and again, Edward Boxer, as a medical person, tells that. And I, I kind of created a bit of a, I was, I was curious in terms of, does this resonate with people? So I put it out there as, you know, hope is the fifth vital sign. But what is it and how is it? And it's, it's drawn a lot of attention. And Colleen, you, you and I, that's where we started this conversation from, yeah. was you came back in and, and asked some questions around um, all these other components of hope, false hope, toxic hope, um, all those kinds of things, or toxic positivity. And we must be very clear that hope is, it's a team sport. You know what? You can actually save a child's life. Let's say the child is the patient. You can save that child's life if they themselves are hopeless yes. or lacking hope because they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. If the parents and if the medical team around them show up with in, enough hope, that hope can be life-saving for that child. And that's why I think the, the, the concept of hope for me is so beautiful, is that it's not about me being hopeful and sorry for you. Mm. This is around a social engaged yes. kind of collective collaboration. And I call that energized engagement. So for me, it's around how do we get the right experts gifting their wisdom, their knowledge, their insights, their expertise. And as they do that, they create the sense of confidence. And then people... That, you know, my mom is 88 years old. She was in ICU for a month last year as a result of going in for a basic surgery, which went wrong. And then there was side effects. And so, and literally for two weeks, she was in ICU. 
And I kept asking him, Mom, have you asked the doctor this? Have you learned? Have you, and did you look at what the operation was going to entail? Did you do the YouTubes that I sent you? And she was like, no. So I hoped for her because I was, yeah. I was so far away. I couldn't. So my hope was I got frustrated. I must be honest. Because I wanted my mom to be the mom that she was when I was you a child. Yes. My mom used to fight the doctors. She would say to them, yeah. why are you giving that medication? What is it? Is there an alternative? How are you going to manage the... The probiotics, the, uh, you know, so when we take these things over here, we don't, we don't kind of, and, and what can we on contraindications and why this medication for that long? Yeah. Can we not do it for shorter? My mom was my champion and the roles have reversed. Here's me championing my mom. And the crazy thing is, is that we had an amazing surgeon. In fact, there were two surgeons because one was a cardiovascular, which is the original operation. And then the other was a, was a surgeon, specialist surgeon. But the GP was never, my mom went to see the GP when she eventually came out of hospital six weeks later. She went to the GP and he'd not been contacted. Mm. He didn't know my mom was in hospital. And I look at it and say, when I did my psychology training, I was actually trained in the in Edendale Hospital in the pediatrics unit. And we would sit around this, this patient yes. and you'd have the dietitian and the physiotherapist and the pharmacist and the doctor and the, the, the pediatrician and the psychologist and the whole team of us. And we were all there with a single common purpose. Yeah. Let's do the best diagnosis for the best prognosis so we can actually get this child home as quickly as possible so they don't come back. That would be my objective. And that's the ideal world of hope. Yeah. That's also then putting the patient in the center and also having a multidisciplinary approach to, to the patient. And then yeah. saying, okay, what do you see? So it's like sitting at the elephants and saying, no, I don't see that. You know, this is what I see. Um, and that is also care at a huge level. Also, and, while and you were talking about hope, it, it reminded me of, you know, hope the size of a mustard seed. Yes. Um, or faith the size of a mustard seed. And you're also saying, you know, in, in the story that it doesn't matter who has the mustard seed, you know, who has the hope because yes. it all – it all works together for for good. Exactly. So that concept of, and that's why I call it a social dynamic, you mm. know, the and, and it really amounts to, and I don't know, I mean, a really good friend of mine, Melissa um, Williams-Platt, lost her, lost her son, her and Fred. Yes. They lost their son and they created a, a, a trust called Footprints for Sam. And they have, she's been talking the story in the medical world. She's highly in, entrenched into that space. She's gone through that grief and, and, and she's teaching other people how yeah. to do better than initially what she would, because she was almost learning by doing, as I say, you know, so oftentimes that was happened to us. Life, life throws us the curveball. And yet they have this incredible gift that they're now in the bits fifth year medical students. They are doing should we call it the both sides of the stethoscope? So they, they've got a program that they're bringing the Footprints for STEM story, how people cope, the power of hope, how they bring all of that together um, so that we are actually training our doctors because our doctors are incredibly well-trained, but not on everything. Yeah. It's just they like love, I was training psychology, but yeah. not on everything, you know? So um, I look at it from the point of view of saying, you, you're always going to find a patient that, that you've never seen before. The issue is how do you take your broad knowledge and apply that in the team context so that you actually come up with the most beneficial diagnosis, as you say, for good. Yeah. Um, and I have, a, I have a soundbite and I call it for better tomorrows, for better next. I've taken that thing from James Stockdale and I'm saying in my now, I still want next. 
Yes. I'm not going to lose my faith and my hope and my belief that it can be. But I also have to be realistic. How am I going to get there? Because right now it's impossible. And and Ben Hardy is a, is a great author I've been following for a couple of years. And he writes the story of future self. And, and we've got to almost anticipate who we can still yet be and become. And here's yeah. the crazy thing. We, we choose change. I chose to get married. I, we got married a month after the 1994 elections or 93 elections. Some people in South Africa were building their homes, barraging and closed and building, yeah. you know, burying we baked beans. We chose to get married. You know, so again, it's a different, that's that perspective shift and that reframe that is so important. And as you do that, people willingly embrace and move into these unknown unknowns. Like, like, we didn't know that we were going to have children. Well, I've got three. And each of them has been a joy and a blessing and a new experience. But nothing prepared me, for example, for having a daughter. I'm, 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 I'm from a family where I have a brother. I, and then suddenly, our third child is a girl. And when I, when I kind of pulled the child up, and I was like, there's something. Yeah, we just lost you there for a moment. Okay, so I'll talk until Rory comes back. Something missing, <laughs> you know, something, this little pink person yes. who's now 18. And there was no textbook. Yeah. But you, you, you find your way because you are wanting, and my daughter wants to do medicine. So for me, this is a real passion point, you know, is to say, how can I put there for her so that she has the best opportunities and experience and exposure? How can I talk those hope stories and encourage her dream yeah. and turn that dream into a reality? So before we close, Rory, how do people find hope? Where do they find it? Because well, you will see in the world at the moment, I think people are feeling like they've run out of hope, but it's there. Yeah. I think there's two parts to that. One is you can't just order it off Take A Lot or Amazon. They're not going to deliver you a little bottle called Hope. Um, and yet it is available. And I go back to what Edith Edgar said. It's a choice. And it's a choice that you as an individual need to make. Sometimes you don't make that choice by yourself. Sometimes one of your family or a loved member, your partner, your spouse, your children, they can actually be that catalyst. They can be that light switch in terms of, but, but this can be. And, and, and for me, that's why I say so, hope is a social thing for me. There is a metric um, that's called the, the hope inventory. Um, if you go into Shine Hope, they've got a beautiful way of going about it. So they talk around how do you do hope? And I talk around manage your stress mm -hmm. the here and the now. They talk around, um, you know, the H, the I, the N, the E, and I'll put that link through. Maybe we can send that to the folks afterwards so they can go and look at a very practical and a pragmatic example of here's a toolbox. Because I think sometimes... When it's not going to arrive by magic. It's not going to fly on a, no. on a, on a flying carpet. Um, and it's not something that you can pay money for. It's a decision that you need to make because you have changed the perspective. Yeah. And that perspective, the first most important perspective shift, Colleen, for me is not what can go wrong because we're very good at that. We look at yeah. all the stuff and we do our risk analysis and we, we run our projects based on risk mitigations and all that. And I look across and I say in the, in the projects that I've worked in, very few people ask this question, what can go right? And that goes back to the story I started with in terms of COVID. When I went into COVID, I said, what can go right for me? Mm -hmm. And I went and I found hope. 
without realizing it, it was like it was already a mustard seed that had been in my life all my life. So I reactivated, I re-energized it, I actually kind of yes. nurtured it. I I had to put effort and dedication into it. And I researched it and it and I and I made sense of it for me. As I say, at first point it's a decision because you've changed your perspective. Yeah. The other things then fall into place. Yes. And so just so important to you out there of you know, mindfully sit with yourself and ask yourself, do you go out the door looking for bad things? Mm. Do you go to a social event and go, oh, I'll sit with the boring person? Do you uh, sit down in a restaurant and along comes lunch and you think, oh, I'm sure it will be rubbish. Okay. And you'd be surprised at what you get, what you think. Mm. Yes. And so it's just about that when you when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. That's so true. That is so true. Yeah. And nothing changes if nothing changes. So so that 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 first change is actually an individual. And as I say, the supporting part of that is that you could actually, as I say, hope for me a social. And you can have people around you supporting you, enabling you, encouraging you, whether that's a coach, a spouse, a child, a parent. My sense is that we are, that's why I say that social distancing for me is the is the biggest aha that happened through COVID. They, they actually published a document in the early part of COVID in April 2020. And they said this is the biggest psychological experiment ever done. And we will reap the consequences. And I read that and I thought, I defy that. I, I want to be a contributor to actually risk mitigate that. And, and my story is literally how can we, I, how can the, the, the circle that I influence, how can we actually create a different narrative that we don't just have to accept this thing that it is a tsunami and mental ill health and more suicides. And the reality is there, the here and the now. We have a choice. We have a choice. Absolutely. So would you say then that that's your take-home message for people? You have a choice. Absolutely. And choose hope. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just a choice in terms of any choice. It's like a choice, but choose hope. Yes, but and choosing hope comes in things like choosing gratitude, choosing to manage yes. your stress, choosing to um, find out about emotional intelligence, choosing to sit with the emotion as opposed to squash it. Yes, There's so many things that you can do, and call it out for what it is. You know, it's yes. it, it's, a, it's a data point. You know, it's not. Yeah. You know, I mean, I. You know, and the, you mentioned emotional agility. So Susan David is African who's a, yeah. and she is brilliant. People must go watch a TED talk with Susan David. Yes. Um, you know, she, she kept yeah, even her book. She's so South African and it's so cute reading her that you think, oh, so South African. <laughs> exactly. In fact, yes. I discovered her also during lockdown. And that was again one of those gifts is that because I was in, I was curious around what can be. And and suddenly when you start looking, things yeah. find you. Well they yeah. What you put out comes back. Yes. So, Rory, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for actually bringing your energy, for bringing your your energized engagement. Um, Thanks, I've Paulina. Really appreciate it. See the whole audience lift just from you talking to us. So, thank you for that. Well, let's let's plant the seed, and may it may it multiply exponentially, far, far, and loud. Okay. Thanks, Colleen. All right. So you have been tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. Please remember, you are loved, you matter, and you're not alone. And let's actually add, you have a choice. Be blessed. See you next time. It's been a long road, but we're finally here in beautiful Buda and more than ready to serve this community. 
With 57 service bays, convenient same-day appointments, and some of the friendliest Subaru experts around, not to mention plenty of loaner vehicles, our service department is ready to get you in and out and onto your next adventure. That's love at the all-new, state-of-the-art, city-limit Subaru. I don't want to just sell you one car. I want to sell you and your family cars for life. Where we play your music your way all day, every day. This is Vuga Online, your inspiration radio station. station.